Hi everyone, Matt here. As you may recall, I was supposed to be hosting this week's episode, off the back of my deserving Sleepless in Seattle win. However, there's been a development. I'm going to be taking a mini hiatus for the next few episodes, while I oversee the nurturing of my own true sequels, whom my partner and I welcomed into the world in the early hours of January 25th. I shall be returning soon and will officially be stealing Drew's catchphrase of as a new dad, and in return I hand over the hosting reins to him. And so, over to you Drew. Hello everyone, we hope that you will all join all of us in sending lots of love and congratulations to Matt, his partner, and their two new arrivals. Yay! 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 Congratulations! And so now, on with the show, welcome listeners new and returning to episode 37 of Sequel Pitch, a podcast where film enthusiast friends review movies and have a contest to see who has the best idea for a sequel. My name is Drew Toynbee, and I'm delighted to be able to be hosting today's podcast for the celebration of Sequel Pitch's first birthday... Um, which is in a couple of days we made it we didn't quit we nearly quit but we didn't we carried on it's very good well i nearly quit the guy they might have all carried on but whenever we lose we basically say the podcast yeah yeah every time we don't win yeah we all have that dark (laughs) that dark time for the day afterwards where we're like i'm not fucking doing this anymore (laughs) (laughs) Pick my pitch. <laughs> um, and joining me for the birthday celebration, we have our handsome hero who says he's just here for the money, but deep down has a heart of gold, Andy Henry. <laughs> Hello. Thank you. Hello. Uh, joining him, a, a sinister force who would do anything for love, up to and including stealing other people's organs, it's Ross Armston. <laughs> yeah, give me your pancreas, you <laughs> And um, finally today, we are tremendously excited to welcome the Anxunamun to our Imateps, the Evie to our Ricks. Nice. It is M from Verbal Diorama. M, how are you? <laughs> well, um, your guest host is a woman. What does a woman know? Let's find out, <laughs> shall we? Uh, <laughs> hello. Um, yeah, I, I was not expecting that. And uh, <laughs> I, I'm certainly not dressed like an Uxana Moon, although I did threaten you that I would be. Uh, <laughs> and then I thought, hmm, maybe the gold body paint and the, the pasties is, is probably not the most professional, especially since we're on video as well. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I can't, I can't imagine your partners would be... Uh, especially thrilled with this. Yeah, so, were, yeah, might be an odd look if yeah. if my wife walked in. Yeah, um, a little bit. But I'm delighted to be here, and 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 happy anniversary to you all. Well, thank you, thank, thank you. you. And would you do you want to tell our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with you about your about your podcast? Nah, no, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, yeah, I guess so. Um, so I am from Verbal Diorama. And, oh, I mean, I'm from it. It's literally just me. So I <laughs> don't know why I said I'm from it. It's not like it's a conglomerate of podcasts or anything. No, um, I think that's like accepted terminology, though, wouldn't it? Isn't it really? Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess so. I- um, if it would feel weird if you'd said I am verbal diorama, well, but that's the thing. That's the weird thing that I am. Like it's uh, that's like that's like my superhero alter ego or something. Um, yes. Okay. I am and from. I am and am from. 
uh, verbal diorama. And um, yeah, actually, um, my podcast is also celebrating an anniversary the same week that you guys are, which is yeah. a very, very weird coincidence. Um, nice. So my podcast is going to be three, or it is three, because we're recording yeah. a bit in advance. Hey. But yeah, <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, three years old, my podcast. And uh, yeah, I've been talking about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't for three years, uh, which is pretty awesome. And it's really hard work, but excellent fun. <laughs> and the most yeah. fun that I have is coming on other podcasts and getting to talk about awesome movies and especially the movie that we're going to be talking about because um, you guys were very kindly have changed your rules for me. We have. <laughs> we have indeed. <laughs> I, I was about to explain that next. Our primary rule for 36 episodes <laughs> has been we do movies on this podcast that don't have sequels. But we couldn't not let you do the 1999 action-adventure classic, The Mummy, directed by Stephen Summers, starring Rachel Weisz, Brendan Fraser, John Hanna, and Arnold Vosloo. Yeah. To be honest, we just didn't want to watch the Tom Cruise one. That's why. Well, there is, to be honest, maybe yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> Although, I, uh, I did think to myself, maybe they're going to psych me and they're going to be like, I'm going to turn up for this recording. <laughs> and they're going to be like, yeah. right, so now we're going to be talking about a sequel to 2017's The Mummy. <laughs> I was just going to go... No, God damn you! <laughs> we might have to book you in now for your fourth birthday and our second to do the Tom Cruise one. But no, we'll... no, I, I refuse. I would love to come back. I would love to come back, but I refuse to come back for that. Okay, fair enough. I, 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 I would do anything for sequel pitch, but I will not do that. <laughs> I also think I'm ill that day as well. Uh, yeah. Well, and that's saying something. Andy's the only one of us who hasn't missed an episode of the podcast yet. So that's wow. it takes Tom Cruise doing a failed <laughs> shared universe launching movie to get oh, yeah, Andy to miss it. an episode. Um, so before we get into reviewing The Mummy, um, which we're all going to have lots of thoughts on, uh, we do a hopefully, ideally, 60 seconds-ish summary of the plot so that you at home know it for our reviews and for the sequels later on, just in case you haven't seen it. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to start that. Now... In ancient Egypt, the pharaoh discovers a steamy affair that has been going on between his high priest Imhotep and the pharaoh's mistress, Anaxunamun. The lovers immediately murder the pharaoh, and Anaxunamun <laughs> kills herself as a distraction, allowing Imhotep to escape, safe in the knowledge that he will be able to bring her back from the dead. But before Imhotep can perform the ritual at the City of the Dead, he is caught by the pharaoh's guards and punished with the most horrific mummification alive ever. In He's double secret mummified. And it has the unfortunate side effect that it leaves him able to be revived as an immortal, almost omnipotent creature of pure evil, which definitely won't backfire for anyone ever. Millennia later, Rick O'Connell, played by Brendan Fraser, uh, discovered the city of the dead fighting in the French Foreign Legion, and he is subsequently hired by bookish but capable Evie, played by Rachel Weiss, to take her and her rascally brother Jonathan, played by John Hanna, back to the city. There, they accidentally raise the mummy who goes about stealing organs from people to reconstitute himself before stealing Evie away to be his sacrifice to bring back the soul of Anaxunamun. 
Rick and Jonathan race to the city with the help of Ardeth Bay, played by Oded Fair, who is the leader of the Magi, the descendants of the Pharaoh's guards. There, they all defeat the mummy and escape before the city collapses with camels laden with treasure, Imhotep's last words echoing in their ears, Death is only the beginning. Yeah, that was a quick summer. Okay. Yeah, I, I didn't, yeah, I didn't actually impressed. time it, but I was like, yeah, that, it's, it's a straightforward it's, movie, uh, you know. Doesn't yeah. mean it's bad. Stuff, it's a couple of chases, a couple of fights. Yeah. yeah. At the end. yeah so, first off, very quickly, I'd, I'd quite like to go around and just do high-level thoughts like, do you like it, do you love it, do you not like it? Just so we know which direction everyone's coming from, and then we can get into nitty-gritty bits that we really like. So, lady first, M. Tell us of your affection for this film. <laughs> well, sonnets have been written about my affection for this movie. It is my favourite movie. Genuinely, 100%. Uh, I, I always say it's the greatest movie ever made. And I know that a lot of people are like, yeah, but what about The Godfather? And, and what about Raiders of the Lost Ark? And what about... I'm trying to think of another good one. <laughs> you know, all of those ones that are in the IMDb top 100 that everyone's yeah, up. Yeah. Like, um, mm. yeah, you know the ones that I mean. Um, Emperor's New Groove. That's in top 100. <laughs> yeah. It, to be honest, it probably is. Um, but I genuinely feel like this movie, first of all, I feel like it's underrated to a degree that if you look at the Rotten Tomatoes score for this movie, it's ridiculously low. It's like 62%. No. Really? Really? Which is probably the most ludicrous thing. And also a really good indication of why Rotten Tomatoes actually sucks, Um, (laughs) you know, as a a review aggregator. Um, But I digress. Um, To me, it's the perfect kind of genre mix. If you look at, if you look at movies of, um, you know, a, a mixed genre, this is essentially five genres in one because it, it's a horror movie and it's an effectively scary horror movie in places. The CG does hold up in a sense of Imhotep yeah. himself. I would say it more than holds up, but we'll let's save the save the yeah, in-depth yeah. discussion yeah. for us. A... By the way, you, you wanted a brief synopsis. I don't come on any podcast to be brief. I'm really sorry. Uh, <laughs> but um, so, yeah, it's, it's a horror movie. It's a romance. It's a comedy. It's an action and it's an adventure movie. It's got all of these things and it doesn't slip on any of those. It it keeps kind of everything of the, the highest quality that it can be for each of those genres. And I just think that it's it's one of those movies that only ever kind of appreciates when you kind of look back, especially in that year, the the 1999, and you kind of look at all of these wonderful movies that came out in 1999 and what a year that was for cinema in general. Um, And yes, you could argue, well, The Mummy didn't change cinema because really it was basically hearkening back to those action-adventure movies of the past, you know, the pulp cinema and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and that's kind of the point of it. But it just feels like it, it kind of came out at the right time. It had the perfect cast. It had a good script. It had everything going for it that it needed, um, which in many ways and many reasons is why the the sequel, plural, <laughs> uh, that we had didn't seem to kind of 
match that mm. because it was so special for its time. Um, and obviously, the, the reason why we're here is we're essentially rewriting The Mummy Returns. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Um, not that I dislike bit. The Mummy Returns. I think The Mummy Returns is decent. I think it does a lot of good stuff. But overall, it kind of lacks on some things. Um, it didn't catch the same lightning in the same bottle. No, no, not at all. But yeah, I, I adore this movie. I've probably watched this the most out of any movie in the world. Um, so, yeah, I I think it's really, really special, actually. Okay. Uh, Ross, how about you, mate? Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I yeah, like watching it again. I used to I used to enjoy this movie. Um, yeah, like M said, it was it's it has got a lot of different genres. Um, it is. I remember it being scary when I watched it at the cinema. I think or on VHS. I can't really remember where I watched it, but um, I remember being scared, especially the the guy who gets his eyes taken and his tongue yeah. taken out. Then he gets sucked completely dry in that um, and he's just there as, as a little husk. Um, that, yeah, it's, and, and also the CGI and like the stuff that they did because I watch a lot of Corridor Crew like I like was going to bring them up later mm. yeah yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and learning about actually the techniques that they used during filming for the CGI and stuff it was really actually like quite forward mm-hmm. at the time of 1999 um, and I'm a big fan of anything ancient Egypt and stuff like that and I like the sort of lore and I don't know it, it gave me a little hearkening back to you know Indiana Jones and that sort of you know high adventure and I I enjoy it and I I yeah I just I I enjoy it I I wouldn't say it's like I wouldn't say it's the best I, I mean to me <gasps> <laughs> I mean to me it would be Indiana oh Jones but you know <laughs> but I, it is a good like it is a good attempt and it's a good film like you said uh, for when it came out as well mm. um yeah i think yeah all in all it's quite good yeah yeah, yeah. andy good yeah i always remember the second one um not just because it has the rock but uh <coughs> because i remember it just being better so it was really nice to go back and watch this one because this one is i really like this one and i forgot kind of how good it was and the reason i i still prefer the second one I watched the second one after. Um, wow, what is wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, because I just feel like it's got, it's got, it has what the first one has, just a little bit more. But you wouldn't have got that without the first mummy. It's got that annoying so kid as well. A... Hmm? Yeah, annoying... again, you're, the kid is the kid does kind of ruin it for half the movie. It, half and the it's got the right, worst, it's, but, the oh, worst, literally the worst CGI. Yeah. Rock Scorpion King. We're, in we're not. We're not yeah, here we to. We're not here to relitigate the awfulness yeah, of the CG of the rock. CGI, anyway, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Go on. But um, no. It, it was. It. Yeah. It's. It's really good. It's better than I remember. And um, yeah. I don't think we would have had the sequel that everyone loves without <laughs> the first one. Well, the sequel that we're going to rewrite. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> what did you think, Drew? I. It's. I, I I'm kind I'm I I'm not on exactly the same level as M, but not I, many people are to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I I really really like this movie. I 
have a lot of fun with it. I remember being very jealous that it was the first 12 movie, because this was pre-12A, and when it came out, my brother went to see it for his 12th birthday with my dad, and I was very jealous that I wasn't old (laughs) enough to go. And coming back to it now is such a pleasure. Just everyone is so charming. John Hanna... I, I I wish that I had seen John Hanna in more stuff. I fully appreciate now why over the last few years I've seen memes that this is the film that made swathes of people across the world realise that they were bisexual because of Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz yeah. in the same movie. Good Lord. Oh, definitely, yeah, yeah. And... Omid Jalili showing up as the prison guard. I I still yeah. I I am instantly transported back to being about fourteen and peep and spending about a week of my friends and I after we watched this film going around going thank you very much because of how he says it in this film. <laughs> like just it, it's so memorable. Great villain, great heroes. I'm a big big fan. So digging into more specifics then m hello as 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 your favorite movie yeah. if there if there was <laughs> one scene can, can you identify for us your favorite scene in your favorite movie my favorite do you know what no one's ever asked me what my favorite scene is before <laughs> my favorite scene okay so I think because a lot of my favourite stuff just tends to be um, a lot of the kind of banter between between Rick and Evie. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and a lot of my favourite stuff just tend to centre on Evie just from the point of view that she's such an important character for me personally to see a woman on screen not only, um, you know, as a main cast member along with Brendan Fraser, but also so pivotal to the story. Yeah. And she is literally the most intelligent person in in pretty much the whole cast. That one character is the the pinnacle of all of this knowledge. Um and and to kind of have that in 1999 felt like such a big deal. And so a a lot of my favourite stuff is kind of centred on her in a sense that I, I guess for me, she is so important. And it's then when you kind of look into the character a bit more, and I'm going to come to this actually uh, in my, in my pitch, uh, which you'll be surprised to know is very brief. Uh, It's only a couple (laughs) of sentences long. Um, It'll literally take me seconds. Um, But, we find out in this movie that that she's biracial as well, which is something they don't dwell on in this movie. The fact that she's half Egyptian and and half English. Um, But I always found that quite fascinating. And it's something that I wish they had dwelled on a little bit more to kind of talk about as, and obviously Rachel Voice is not biracial, um, but to have a character that is the lead in a movie that is biracial and a woman and you know, this is the 20s and what women were expected of back then. You know, they were expected to be wives and mothers. She is a professional woman. She can read and write ancient Egyptian. 
you know, she's she's so educated. Um, so basically, what I'm trying to say in a really roundabout way is pretty much any scene with Evie, but predominantly the scenes with Rick because fucking Brendan Fraser's a fucking awesome. Love oh, that yeah. man. Yeah, Love I've, him. Y- and to be honest, again, yeah, you you see how good Brendan Fraser is. He's yeah. so good. And it yeah. pains me really because whenever I watch this movie and pretty much any movie that Brendan Fraser was in in like the late 90s kind of 2000s period and how good he was and how charismatic he was and it's it's not so much a case of oh he looked fit even though yeah he Jesus Christ <laughs> that man is fit but as <laughs> as Drew's already said this is literally one of the most attractive casts you've got Odette yeah. Fair Jesus Christ yeah. that man who uh, and then you've got like <laughs> Patricia Velasquez in like gold body paint, and she's like, "Whoa, look at the for, body for on like, that woman!" Oh my god! For like one scene, and yeah. and I I'm I never forgot that scene. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But it's like Brendan Fraser obviously has gone through some really horrific shit in Hollywood mm. and been blacklisted and all of that, and he's coming back now, and it's about bloody time because the world needs brendan frazier he's awesome and this is one of those movies that reminds us how fantastic he was and what a crime it was after everything that he went through that he was blacklisted and all of that because look at what he can do look at what Uh, i mean we know what rachel voice can do because she's awesome but Yeah, love Brendan Fraser. We wanted an Uncharted movie in the 90s with Brendan Fraser. Yes. Great. Wow. Oh, God, yeah. Wouldn't that yeah. be awesome? Yeah, that would be sick. Ross, I would, yes. I'd like to ask you the same. Is there is there one particular part of this film that stands out to you above all else? I think for me, <laughs> weirdly, talking about it earlier, it's the practical, like the effects that they used. They're very memorable. Like especially when Brendan Fraser at the beginning comes across the, the oh the sand bit, yeah, yeah, the with face. the sand, the, the, face the, sand. With the face in the sand, mm. and also the sandstorm as well. Um, that's really yeah. good. But and also again, I really like Brendan Fraser. He's like the best. Like I feel he, he, his quips and things that he yeah. says in the movie really funny um and he's got a lot of heart and yeah charisma in this movie as well and it really carries it um i like i also like the little what's the guy's name with the little the the he like starts to do ben, all the different chanting Benny. in ben, different yeah, religions. Uh, yeah, yeah, Ke- yeah, Kevin O'Connor. His little That's buddy it. Benny. He's really good as well. <laughs> little really buddy Benny. <laughs> Um, yeah, those were some of the highlights, and I think yeah, the, the practical effects, and also le- like learning about the practical effects and the later like after it makes it even more like memorable as well. Yeah, and also the scene where the bugs under the skin that still gets me. Like yeah. it just makes me squirm. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. horrible. Awesome. I think the on the the horror bit, like the, again, the bit where you see him in the shadow lift up. When he's in the the guy that yeah. lost his eyes, yeah, in like and then the hotel room, yeah, and then you yeah. see the shadow of him, and it just goes, it just gets really emaciated. Oh. Yeah, yeah, but in many ways, that's it. more effective than if they showed it on screen because oh, yeah. it's implied, yeah. Yeah. you know, yeah. implied violence and implied scare is always going to be more scary. Yeah. Um, yeah, but yeah, I think the 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 CG in this movie 
Um, a lot of people um, slate the CG in this movie, but if you look at it for its time, and mm. look, right, people, some people really annoy me when they're like, yeah, but <laughs> Jurassic Park came out like six years before and look how good that is. Jurassic Park was mainly practical puppets. Mm, and yeah. this movie is pretty much more or less all CG. Yeah. And and the mummy himself, you know, when he's not fully regenerated, is genuinely a bit of a work of art. Yeah. Like, he's mm. still, the way that, you know, obviously it was early motion capture, the way that he moves, it was Arnold Vosloo actually doing it, and it, it just looks so fluid. And, the you know, the tiny details of the... You know, the body and the, the bits that you can see into and all of that. It's just really, really good. Like, I people don't talk about it, that enough. With CGI, it's always going to be a thing of going, oh, does it hold up? But I think now when, now that I'm older, now that I'm, uh, I've seen lots of movies, I think you have to then look at the time that they were made and how yeah. advanced it well, was yeah, yeah, yeah. for the time it was made. And even if it doesn't look as good as what you are used to now the the technology they used back then is really forward think like forward thinking and and actually really good like it's the same reason why Jurassic Park is uh you know still still renowned because they used a lot of practical effects and mm. and you know and you can also, see that in- yeah and also like yeah the on Jurassic Park, incredibly quickly, the the T Rex attack in the rain with the full CG T Rex that is a, is incredible when it is full body. But there are there is some CG in Jurassic Park that looks absolute fucking ass. Now the Brachiosaur at the <laughs> oh, beginning yeah, of the movie bad. looks like yeah. shit. If you if you look at it on a big TV, and so like there's people can nitpick all they want, but there's there are always going to be shots that teams have more time to work on or less time to work on or they're in daylight or not in daylight, blah, 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 blah. Um, like for me, the only CG shots in this that really didn't hold up was the the, the the scarabs moving under the skin. But even then, because it's such a viscerally horrible concept, <laughs> the fact that it looks a bit naff didn't bother me so much because I was, yeah. was still going, oh, Yeah, no. you can still feel oh, it, yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> Uh, okay, I'm going to move us on because we've got our pitches to come as well. So we are going to move into our scores. Um, so first off, Andy, I would like you to give us your score for The Mummy 1999 Ooh, out of five. I am going to give it, uh, I think, uh, I'm going to give it four, actually. I was kind of leaning high threes, but I will give it four um for and for i came up with a joke uh, when i was watching this film and i was really impressed but then i i, I i've seen on other youtube shows that it's been uh, it's already been done but <laughs> when they're reading the sarcophagus about emotep and uh rachel weiss says oh it's he who shall not be named i was like oh it's voldemommy <laughs> and then that's already been done you know it's obviously 20 years old this movie so probably everyone's had that joke by now but i'm gonna give it four voldemommies <laughs> very good uh Ross uh I'm going to give it do, 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 do. 4.1 uh <laughs> 76 um <laughs> wet footprints on a ship 
Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, that was a really bad one. Um, there you go. Hour four. Also, Hour five, have you noticed sorry. that the wet footprints, there's no actual... This, it's just wet footprints. Like, you know, like if you got out of the sea, everything would yeah. be dripping. Yeah, you'd be dripping. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. it's literally just, just wet footprints. Shoes. And I love it. Um, it's Jesus. <laughs> he walked on the water. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. 4.1. 4.1. 4.1. Um, Just because I wanted you? to be Andy. Yeah. Well, I, I'm very grateful for that. I always Ross, have to be you. the most cynical, don't I? Go <laughs> Right, okay, so when it comes to my score, I've, I've got a question for you guys, mm-hmm. and that will give you my score. Can you tell me <laughs> how many canopic jars there were? Four. Yeah. No, no there were five. five. There were five. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what? I'm giving it five. And I can do that because I'm a guest what on this surprise? podcast and I yeah. can do whatever the fuck I want. So, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so I'm going to give it five. And to be honest, I, I love this movie. I appreciate it. it's got flaws. I appreciate it's aged a little bit. Um, but I love it so very much that I, I can, I can't not give it five. So yeah, five out of five uh, canopic jars full of organs. Nice, very good. <laughs> nice, including my heart, as well as you know, probably some lungs, some kidneys, you know, all of that sort of stuff. But mostly my heart. <laughs> Fair enough. I am um, for and for me, I'm gonna come in at four point seven five. Ooh, four point seven five horses on the wrong side of the river. <laughs> um, it's yeah. I I'm. I really, really like this movie. As you said, Em, it does have a couple of flaws, and there are, I some of it I found just a little bit hard to get past. But four point seven five out of five of it, I absolutely loved. I just can't quite bring myself to give it a five. But four four point seven five feels pretty right to me. Right with that. We've given our scores, we've told you our thoughts, and without further ado, it is time to get your sequels pitched. The rules of the pitches, if you're new here, are very simple. Uh, My three pitches will have a chance to pitch me their ideas without interruption. They explain the plot, the themes, anything they want to get across to me. I may have questions, I may not. Um, Then, afterwards, we enter the debate phase, where the three pitches will go head-to-head telling me why their movie is the best and maybe why the other two aren't so let's get this show on the road starting with our special guest m me it's because you wanted to get the quickest one out of the way wasn't it (laughs) Um, (laughs) okay i have taken this very seriously my pitch is called the mummy's revenge i will give you a brief summary and then i will launch into it so nine months after the events of the mummy rick evie and jonathan are brought back to hamanaptra by the resurrection of a creature more powerful than imhotep and more evil okay so we're going to start with a pre-credit scene and pre-credits we see howard carnahan uh played by john sim because why not Uh, And Rania Carnahan, uh, played by Rania Youssef. They are Jonathan and Evelyn's parents. 
Um, and they are a young couple exploring a tomb. It's 1904, and this is their last exploration before returning to London to raise their two young children, Jonathan and Evelyn. Uh, Jonathan's three and Evelyn's one. With them is Sir Arthur Bembridge, cameo by Hugh Grant. <laughs> Just thought, why, why not put <laughs> Hugh Grant in there? Because he's English, and obviously... Um, so Arthur, Sir Arthur Bembridge is a descendant of the founder of the Bembridge Scholars. While investigating a heretic on the wall, a secret passage opens and Howard, Rania and Arthur find the Scroll of Toth, a scroll prophesied to give life to anything that has been long dead. Howard and Rania are thrilled with their final find and plan to take the scroll back to the Cairo Museum of Antiquities for display. Arthur, however, accidentally torches the scroll when the light dies in the tomb. And Howard and Rania return despondently to London to be with their children. Then, oh. meanwhile, Arthur Bembridge returns to the Cairo Museum of Antiquities, removes the scroll from a hidden pocket in his coat, paces it in a safe location, and smiles to himself. Title card, The Mummy's Revenge. Ooh, spooky, Ooh. spooky. <laughs> with, with, um, with a wonderful score as well by the late Jerry Goldsmith, who would obviously still probably be alive <laughs> at this point, I believe. Uh, but yeah, we would we would have another Jerry Goldsmith score going on as well. So the movie opens in a dusty dark tomb. Rick O'Connell is inspecting the walls of the tomb, looking for a hidden door to another tomb. And he hears Jonathan shouting his name urgently. We have to go, Jonathan shouts as he reaches Rick. We're running out of time. Relax, replies Rick. I've got this under control. He finds the hidden button and a door opens. They're in the British Museum in London. Oh, you know, like a little bit of a <laughs> little bit of a diversion there. No. Um, and then Jonathan says, Evie will be furious if you're late for your own wedding, O'Connell. And they run out of this museum. <laughs> so we find out it's nine months after the events of the mummy. Uh, Rick O'Connell and Evelyn Carnahan, we see them leaving church as husband and wife. Rick is in his full military regalia from his time in the French Foreign Legion. And Evelyn is wearing her mother's wedding dress. It was gifted to her on her 18th birthday. It is a bejeweled Egyptian silk dress with like lace and pearls. It's very beautiful. Uh, so they've had family travel over. So the O'Connell family come from America. And Evelyn's wealthy Egyptian aunt and cousins. Uh, the aunt is called Dahlia. And cousins Mahmoud and Samir. Uh, her brother Jonathan gives her away. Um, and it's the only point in the movie where he's not a bumbling buffoon because this is Jonathan Carnahan. <laughs> Uh, and he says, you look lovely, old mum. Mummy and daddy would be so proud. And it's all really sweet and nice. So at the reception, Evelyn is congratulated by Lady Helen Bembridge Grosvenor. This is played by Kate Beckinsale. Uh, strong name. I know, I know. Well, there's a reason why it's Lady Helen Bembridge Grosvenor. Um, so she is the only daughter of Arthur Bembridge, who you'll remember was Hugh Grant. Uh, so Arthur Bembridge passed away the year before. And Helen is a former school friend of Evie. And she's recently married George Grosvenor, the seventh Earl of Guildford, uh, played by Paul Bettany, because obviously. Mm -hmm. um, and nice. basically, she now runs the Bembridge Scholars. And it's a measure to integrate more women into this male-dominated society. Uh, and George Grosvenor, he's like a bit of a bit of a racist and a bit of a stuck-up pig. And he mistakes Evelyn's cousins, Mahmoud and Samir, as the help, which infuriates Evie. Um, and Rick basically has to remind her that some battles are best left alone. Um, and we find out a little bit more about Mahmoud, uh, that he's newly engaged in an arranged marriage to a young woman called Neymar. 
Um, and he has this conversation with Evie and he basically says, I don't want to be in an arranged marriage. I'm only doing it to please my mother and all of that sort of stuff. So it just kind of touches on like arranged marriages and stuff like that. Um, a few days after the wedding, Rick and Evie are honeymooning in Egypt. Uh, they've basically gone back because Evie's got family in Egypt. So they go back with Aunt Dahlia, Mahmoud and Samir. Um, and they receive a visit in Cairo from their friend, Ardeth Bay, congratulating mm-hmm. them on their marriage and warning them that a group of men have been searching the wreckage of Hamanaptra, presumably to find Imhotep's remains and or the Book of Amun-Ra. Uh, these people left empty-handed, but Ardeth thinks they'll be back. Rick agrees to go back to Hamanaptra with Ardeth to help the Magi. Uh, Evie insists that she come along and insists that they bring Jonathan along too, because obviously... Jonathan would probably get himself into all sorts of trouble if they left him behind. So they arrive at Hamanaptra, they hide with the Magi, only for Evie to realise the arriving search party includes none other than George Grosvenor, who appears to be frantically digging in the sand for something. Um, so they basically confront them. Uh, Rick says, you don't, you don't want to find whatever it is you're looking for, friend, and points his gun at Grosvenor. He says, you're my wife's friend's husband, but don't think I won't shoot you for attempting to resurrect anything. Uh, so Grosvenor <laughs> he says I heard family jewels were buried here um, and Ardeth kind of joins in and goes not your family and it's all really cool nice. um, <laughs> so basically they've got weapons pointed at George Grosvenor and he agrees to take his men and leave and not return when Rick, Evie, Jonathan and Ardeth return to Cairo news reaches them that there's been a burglary at the British Museum and several artefacts have been stolen including the Scroll of Toth reportedly a resurrection scroll scribed by Seti I himself. And then Evie goes into some history explaining that Seti wanted to live beyond his years and created the scroll in order for his followers to be able to resurrect him. And it's said that if he ever came back to life, he would cleanse the world of evil and would be the king of all men. Uh, And then we get Rick joking, he sounds like a stand-up guy, lol. Um, (laughs) We cut to a darkened room and there's like a circle of men chanting. Uh, I've called them the Setiists. It's not the best name, but it was all I could come up with. Um, And they're basically in front of these ancient robes belonging to Seti that were stolen from the British Museum because colonialism and museums get weird stuff. (laughs) And so at the helm of the Setiists is George Grosvenor and he's holding the Scroll of Toth. And they basically chant, George requests the presence of Seti and speaks the ancient text of the scroll. And as they chant, like, robes begin to fill out with the body and head of Seti and I kind of thought a bit like that scene in Beetlejuice where you've got like Gina Davis and nice. um, mm. Alec Baldwin and their bodies kind of start filling out I thought that was quite a cool image um, and so Seti disoriented wants to know where he is and they base the Seti give praise and explain that he has been reborn 3,000 years later as the king of all men uh, and then we go through some flashbacks uh, Seti's final moments before his death were for his love for Anaxana Moon, despite her betrayal, because she was his favourite mistress, in inverted commas. Um, they explain that using the scroll of Toth, Seti can resurrect Anaxana Moon, and they can rule together as immortal beings, and that the earth is now impure, and Seti must cleanse it. Um, so basically, cleansing goes back to the ways of Seti. Uh, so basically the world is going to go back 3,000 years where women have no rights there's going to be ethnic cleansing infanticide, slavery uh, and with Seti and his followers only in positions of power um, because that's kind of Seti's definition of evil um, because he just wants like his version of purity and all of that sort of stuff Um, but first Seti wants a queen by his side because you know 
men am i right um, <laughs> um so so meanwhile back in cairo evie is discussing the scroll with rick suggesting if it has been stolen by someone who knows what they're doing they could bring unimaginable destruction to the world uh she says think of the most evil person in history could be re- restored with just a few words so evie pleads with him we must find this scroll rick before it's too late um Ardith Bay finds them, tells them the ancient Magi warriors have been summoned to become Seti's bodyguards once more and to protect Seti as he uses his powers to raise Hamanaptra and restore Anaxuna Moon. Rick and Evie realise the scroll has been used to resurrect Seti and Evie brings Rick and Jonathan up to speed on what a tyrant he was and that his version of cleansing would set the world back 3,000 years. Ardith tells him that as a Magi he swore an oath to protect Hamanaptra and as his ancestors protected Seti, he must do so again. So he basically wishes them well, but he cannot help them anymore. He must be loyal to his king. Evie pleads with him to reconsider, but Ardeth tells her he cannot betray the Magi because he's obviously sworn like this oath with the Magi that he will always be, you know, part of them. So Rick, Evie and Jonathan travel to Hamanaptra to try to stop Seti's rule, but Rick and Evie are captured by the Setiists. Jonathan, hiding, manages to escape before being rescued by a mysterious young man who calls himself Khalid, and claims to be an explorer trying to stop Seti. Seti takes a shine to Evie, because men, uh, and proclaims that she will be his <laughs> second queen, because obviously men in power like to have multiple queens. Rick struggles against his bonds and tells Seti that she's already married to him, but as the new king of this world, Seti will Seti's wants go above some mere mortal man's. He suggests to Evie that she can either agree to marry him or Rick will be killed by his followers. So Evie agrees, but on a final goodbye with Rick, suggests he find a way to destroy Seti before she's married to a 3,000-year-old pharaoh. Jonathan and Khalid find and free Rick, and Jonathan suggests that if they can take the scroll from Seti, maybe they can undo the resurrection. The scroll is under the protection of George Grosvenor, who Rick kind of has this really cool sword fight with. George is killed, uh, so Rick takes the scroll, but without Evie because she's obviously the person who can read it, how will they read it? So Jonathan says he'll try because he knows a little bit. uh, And after reading for a few moments, suggests that the scroll cannot undo a resurrection, but it can resurrect something else. So Jonathan turns to Rick and says, what about if we bring back Imhotep? Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Um, So Jonathan also says he can't be the one to do it. Despite learning more Egyptian with Evie, uh, Khalid says that he must... For Seti will only get stronger the longer he's resurrected. Suddenly the Setiists attack and Rick and Khalid must hold them off while Jonathan attempts to recite the scroll. With Rick and Khalid overpowered, Jonathan struggles to finish the incantation uh, until Ardith Bay appears and helps Rick and Khalid. I kind of wanted something to do with uh, Amenophus. Haven't managed to kind of get it in, but just kind of, you know, like calling back to like Amenophus. So like, you know, Jonathan would be like, oh, I know this, this is Amenophus and all of that sort of stuff. Um, <laughs> So it's basically like this huge battle. So Ardith Bay appears uh, and ends up helping Rick and Khalid. Um, and they're like, what are you doing? You told us that you couldn't be here to help. And basically Ardith Bay's like, I don't like the Pharaoh's idea for world domination. Like, I just want to, I just want to fight this dude. Um, so when he realizes Jonathan is bringing back Imhotep, he's basically like, you can't bring back a creature to kill a creature. But Jonathan argues that Imhotep's love for an accident moon might be enough that they can control him. Meanwhile, I told you this was short. Meanwhile, <laughs> Evie manages to escape. And while finding her way out of like these numerous corridors, she bumps into Helen Bembridge Grosvenor, who says she's looking for her husband, George. 
Evie says that they will find him together and they end up in the same room as Rick, Jonathan and Ardeth. Evie helps Jonathan resurrect Imhotep after being brought up to speed. She basically tells him what he needs to say. Uh, and Evie reintroduces Helen to Rick. Helen says she followed her husband George here but can't find him. Um, and then Imhotep is basically fully resurrected um, and basically can remember immediately what happened in the previous movie and immediately goes to try and kill Rick. Um, they basically restrain him and Evie speaks to him in ancient Egyptian and tells him Seti is back, he's taken an Uxun and a moon uh, and they basically kind of go a bit back and forth. They agree to a temporary truce to fight a common em en their enemy even uh, and, and they basically all march to battle together. Uh, Imhotep storms Seti's throne room ready to fight but the Setiists and the remaining Magi because obviously the Magi are still working for Seti uh, they ambush them Seti takes Evie and Helen and the scroll from Jonathan's pocket. Seti resurrects the entire Magi army in mummy form. So basically all of the old Magi that used to uh, work for him. He resurrects them all. And this huge battle ensues. Uh, Rick, Jonathan, Khalid and Ardeth. Um, and so basically at this point, I was kind of like, well, they need some others on their side. So I was like, Ardeth's going to persuade like his Magi to kind of turn to the other side. And basically say, look, you don't want to work for Seti. You want to kind of stop Seti's rule and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. So they're going to come. They're going to come back to the good guys' side to fight the mummy magi. Um, and Imhotep fights Seti, so they're going to be having like some battle between like Seti and Imhotep. Um, and it's a subtitled discussion because obviously they're talking in like ancient Egyptian, where Seti blames Imhotep for touching and corrupting Anuksunamun, um, and Imhotep suggesting that she was nothing but. Seti's slave uh, and then Seti's like you are my high priest my most trusted advisor how could you do this um, and Imhotep's like yeah but I actually loved her and like you because she was just your prize etc uh, etc et so it's a really vicious fight but it's basically just hammering the point home that they they both love this woman but like Imhotep's love is like really pure and like Seti's love was just like she was just his she was just like his possession um, so and then the wounded but not dead George Grosvenor reappears uh, and he's like aghast at all the death and destruction and he shouts to his wife Helen, this is what you wanted? Question mark, dun dun dun. Because oh no, <laughs> Helen was actually behind this the whole time. Um, so Helen starts this huge monologue because she's the bad guy. She has to have a monologue about how her father wanted her to be a modern woman. But all she wanted to was to return to a world where men were the breadwinners and the women were subservient and all of that stuff. Like she basically wants to go full on back. She doesn't want to be a modern woman. She just wants to be like a little wifey at home. And Evie questions how a woman brought up with every comfort should want such a regressive lifestyle. But Helen says there's nothing wrong with a traditional life and that women expect too much, uh, berates Evie for her career goals. The two women basically have a bit of a scrap um, with Evie arguing that women can change the world and it's time that women were able to be equal. And Helen saying that strong women emasculate men and Seti can return us to a time of male dominance, etc, etc. Um, and Evie retorts that women were essentially indentured servants in ancient Egypt and that all Seti did was reign death and destruction in his own way. He would enslave anyone he deemed a lesser being. Helen admits that she was the mastermind behind George summoning Seti, a bewildered Anaxana Moon, because Anaxana Moon's basically not really been doing much at this, at this point in time, to be honest, because uh, she doesn't really understand what's going on. Um, she doesn't understand the language because they're speaking English. And Evie tells her in Egyptian, she means to enslave more women like you. 
Um, and so in Axe and the Moon, she basically spent much of her spent much of her youth as a slave to the whims of men. She understands, and she basically attacks Helen and kills, well, stabs her. Um, and Helen dies in Evie's arms, uh, and she whispers, "My death is only the beginning of the change Seti will bring to this world." And then Evie's like, "Not if I have anything to do with that." Um, so she lays down Helen's body and instructs Anux and Amun to help her decipher the rest of the scroll because only men may speak the words of resurrection but only a woman can undo what's been done because it was thought by Seti that no woman would ever be capable enough to do this so that was his failsafe when he created the scroll was that men can create all of this destruction but women are too stupid to be able to fix it so he put like a failsafe in that only women can undo what's been done um, so Evie explains to Rick, Jonathan, Ardeth and Khalid what they need to do. They need to keep Seti busy while she speaks the ancient incantation to undo the resurrection. But then she's knocked unconscious by a mummy warrior before she can finish. And then Anax and Amun is captured by Seti's warriors. And when all hope is lost, Khalid picks up the scroll and starts to speak. Seti cries out in pain as his resurrection is undone and his body crumples and it's all really cool. Um, and then all that's left is like the ancient robes that he was resurrected in. And Khalid takes off his robes to reveal that he is, in fact, a young woman called Naima, played by Yasmin El-Masri. And she's been secretly posing as a man to fulfil her dreams of becoming an adventurer and explorer, uh, spent most of the movie bonding with Jonathan, and to basically hide from her family who want her to undertake an arranged marriage. And it's the same Naima that's arranged to be married to Jonathan and Evie's cousin Mahmoud. Um as we found out at the start, it was kind of a bit of a throwaway thing, but he was arranged to be married to, married to a girl called Neymar, and this is Neymar. Um, uh, with the battle done, everyone realises Imhotep and Anux and Amun are still there, because, you know, they've kind of been, you know, in the background, but they just love each other so much, and they're just, like, embracing and stuff. Um, and while a huge smackdown is anticipated, like, between Rick and Evie and Jonathan and Ardith and Anux and Amun and Imhotep, um, the love they have for each other is evident um, and that basically they agree that all that they will go back to the afterlife and be together uh, because this isn't their world and all they wanted was to be together um, and so they embrace as Evie uses a scroll to return them to the afterlife and Imhotep's final words are my love Aww. and um, and there's a little prologue as well sorry just to add a little bit more yeah. <laughs> how long have I been talking now quite a lot um <laughs> So there's a little prologue. Jonathan and Neymar get married um, because they've kind of spent most of the movie like getting to know each other. And Jonathan's like, oh, my God, you're a girl. You're, I think you're really fit uh, and all of that sort of stuff. Um, <laughs> so and so they get married um, and they settle down in Cairo. And then Rick and Evie, obviously, they're already married. Um, they're at their London home. They are celebrating the birth of a daughter. Um, and then the camera pans to an artifact in their home. It's a bracelet. And I just thought the bracelet of Anubis could just like be shining in a cabinet somewhere just as a little nod to maybe the Scorpion King who unfortunately is not in this movie. Sorry, The Rock. <laughs> the end. Well done. Nice. Nice. Very well done. Very, very thorough. I am... Yes, I told you. <laughs> I did say. Look, it, it's, we're not going to begrudge you having thorough ideas for the sequel to your favourite movie. <laughs> I don't think I have any questions, honestly. Really? Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I, I try. My style in terms of hosting is I let you guys fight it, fight it out between yourselves. I want to see if 
the others ask any questions that I might ask, and we'll see what happens. So I'm going to move straight on to our next picture, which would be Andy. What's your um, brief summary and title, if you please? So the brief summary is, after Evie tells a young girl of her heritage, they have to stop the girl's plot to awaken a mummy that will rule the world. Uh, and the title is uh, I've got a few. I've got The Mummy 2, Big Trouble in Little Egypt. Uh, Sandfall. <laughs> Sandfall like Skyfall, but it's in the desert, so it's Sandfall. Um, Pack with another one of these block-rocking beats. Uh, you won't get that until you realise the bad guy is called Pack. Um, so, take your pick. Okay, great. So we open on Pharaoh Pack, um, who, just to annoy M, is going to be The Rock. Um, a greedy Pharaoh who wants more power. He finds this kind of cursed or like kind of slightly magic book that will give him godlike power. Uh, and he tries to perform a ritual, uh, but his guards rise up and stop him. They mummify him and curse his body. Uh, we then go into the what would be present time. Um, I'm thinking, what was the first one? I can't remember when the first one came out. Oh, no, it's about three years after the first one, I would say, anyway. Um, uh, we meet Evie working in the library that she now owns. She's speaking to Rick about their wedding plans tomorrow. Uh, Joanna, her assistant, a typical wet blanket doormat character, kind of enters and knocks over an ancient vase. Evie calms her down by showing Joanna a book that she's been reading, showing that the vase belonged to an ancient pharaoh called Pak. And Evie found out that Joanna is a long-lost relative, or long-distance relative of the pharaoh. Uh, so Joanna actually owns the vase, so she shouldn't be that uh, mad or upset. Evie then gives Joanna the books on her family, and that night Joanna starts reading the books and realises that some are diaries, and she soon learns of uh, Pak's goal for godlike power. Uh, and this curse would affect everyone in the pharaoh's bloodline. She tries to read on, but she can't decipher some of the code. So Joanna vows to get revenge on the world for bullying her by performing the ritual that will awaken the pharaoh so he can finish the curse and they can rule the world as gods together. Uh, the next day at the wedding, we see Jonathan, Rick's best man, flirting with some of Evie's, Evie's bridesmaids. Rick scolds him and we learn Jonathan is living with and off of uh, Rick and Evie in their house. At the same time, Joanna is scavenging around caves or, you know, it's Egypt, so under the pyramids for items that she needs for her ritual. Uh, she gets caught by the Magi, uh, who realise what she's trying to do. Uh, the Magi are probably like just protectors of Egypt and the unknown at this point now. Uh, when Ardith questions her, she says she will only speak to one person. And just before Rick and Evie say, I do, in the church, Ardith comes crashing in and says he needs Evie. Rick goes along for protection, and Jonathan just kind of tags along. Uh, while questioning her, Joanna tricks Evie into reading a curse from Pax's diary, possessing the Magi, everyone except Ardith, of course. Uh, and a fight breaks out. Evie says she's been reading about some ancient Egyptian martial arts, and that's why she knows how to fight now. The building starts crumbling to the floor, and they all have to run out to survive. The cave is full of dust, and Joanna tells the Magi to kidnap Evie, but they kidnap Jonathan by mistake. Ardith says Joanna is going to the resting place of the Pharaoh, and they all head there. Uh, they have to make up time, so they go see one of Rick's old friends, Bounty, an inventor. Um, I'm thinking he'd be played by Danny Pudi, who's going to be about 21, I think, 22 at this point. Uh, and he's an inventor and he's kind of invented two like super powered rocket cars uh, that run off sand or something I don't know but they're yeah, rocket cars uh, as they drive uh, <laughs> as they drive basically towards the resting place of the pharaoh Evie and Rick get in a fight talking about kids Evie wants them but now Rick is undecided uh, undecided saying he's already feels like they live with a kid Jonathan at the pharaoh's resting place Joanna realises they kidnapped the wrong person but she knows Jonathan and then threatens him to read the curse that will bring uh, the pharaoh back because she can't um, he brings the pharaoh back to life and Pax says he needs three items for his god, his god curse. 
Joanna has two, but says one of the Magi destroyed the, one of the items when they first found her. Pac then kills the Magi out of anger and to show his dominance, uh, and says that he, they must go to the palace and find his secret room. Jonathan starts moaning, and Pac kind of like punches him or punishes him. He tells Joanna to torture Jonathan with a curse, but she quickly starts to feel bad and stops, saying they need him to read what she can't. Uh, Pac sees the rocket cars, quote unquote rocket cars, fast approaching and performs a curse that creates giant sand creatures uh, that start attacking the car. Uh, the problem is when the heroes chop off an arm or a leg or a head, another one just grows out of the sand body. So it's, you know, unbeatable enemies. Uh, big action scene involving yeah, the sand creatures, maybe walls. Uh, they have to drive in like, you know, mazes or ramps, depending on the density of the sand. Pharaoh tries to get jo Joanna involved, but she starts to doubt what she's done. Uh, Pharaoh then punches Joanna, uh, which leads to Joanna and Jonathan starting to bond. One of the creatures grabs Evie and Pax uh, creates a sand tornado, which blows the heroes back into the horizon. The baddies leave for the palace, while Rick gets mad at Jonathan, telling him that he's a child who needs protecting. Uh, this is also where we can learn maybe Rick is scared about being a dad. Uh, they have to find their way back to the palace, and uh, if we want to go for like an easy route, we can just have Bounty kind of uh, fix up some of the cars, maybe from two cars into one car. I'll kind of want to go more down. They find like an old Magi, maybe Arthur, uh, Ardiff's mentor or father that kind of help him back, get back to the palace. Uh, but at the palace, Pac tells Joanna that they need to find his hidden room to perform a ritual on Evie that will basically kill her and turn her into like a baby machine just popping out God babies. Uh, Pac uses a curse that brings either... <laughs> Pack uses a curse that brings either a mummy army back to life or the army of Anubis, and they start to storm the palace, uh, finally making their way to the pharaoh, uh, killing him, and finding their secret room. The heroes return, and they have a big end fight. Pack tells Joanna uh, to form the ritual on Evie, but she can't do it. Pack says Joanna has proven she's too weak to rule the world, and he tries to kill her, but Jonathan saves her just in time. Jonathan gives Joanna the we can be better people uh, speech, uh, and Joanna says she found uh, Pack's weakness. It's a curse that will kill his entire bloodline. Joanna, uh, Jonathan, sorry, says, no, you know, you can't do that. There must be another way. But Joanna performs the curse, killing Pac and herself. The palace starts to crumble. Rick saves Evie and Jonathan carries Joanna to freedom. Outside, she comes back to life because she's a real long distance re relative. So there's not, you know, there's only a little bit of the Pharaoh blood uh, in her. And then Jonathan and Joanna kiss. Uh, at the end, Jonathan tells Rick that uh, he will change. And basically he helped uh, uh, kind of help him change. So Rick will be a good dad. Rick tells Evie that now he now wants kids because he thinks he can be a good dad, and we learn Bounty stole some gold, so he's rich and can make more inventions. And then there's an after credit scene where we see Evie's pregnant, and Rick's all happy. But is the baby secretly Ardith's? <laughs> no. no. No, no, it's not. <laughs> End. <laughs> okay, very good. Um, and, and no... <laughs> Okay, yeah, I'm um yeah. I'm gonna continue without questions. Thank you, Andy. That was Yeah, very good. I'm gonna move <laughs> straight swiftly on to like the baby popping machine, did you? Oh yeah, that well yeah, that <laughs> any, no anything way. anything I would have to say about that wouldn't come in the form of a question. It would just be a statement. <laughs> so um other than well no, yeah. We'll we'll save that. We'll save that yeah. for the um discussion portion. <laughs> Um, and we'll move on to Ross Harmston, if you please. Hello, my film is called The Mummy 2 Ever Living. Okay. Um, kind of got inspiration from Mumra, The Ever Living. So uh, there you go, that's why I called it Ever Living. Uh, we open the movie and we get a quick history lesson in ancient Egypt about what happens in the afterlife 
in ancient Egyptian culture. It's narrated by Ardeth Bey, uh, much like the first one in the beginning of the first movie. Then we get a scene with Imhotep's soul in the underworld with Anubis going through various mythological things. Um, But he knows when he gets to the god Osiris that his soul will be damned, so he escapes. Uh, Maybe he does a badass fight or something uh, and uh, fights Anubis or something, I don't know. Anyway, he escapes. Uh, Then we see him somehow escape to the real world, but he's a mummy again. Maybe his hand comes up from the ruins of the temple that he was in or something. And then we see the words 1943 on screen, 20 years later after the events of the first movie. Uh, we cut to a military camp outside Cairo in Egypt. We see Egyptian soldiers doing various training exercises. And who is leading them? It's Brendan Fraser as Rick O'Connell helping out the army because it's the Second World War. Um, we learn that uh, he's helping fight the Germans out of Egypt. Uh, he could be like a general or something, I don't know. Uh, anyway, he looks uh, at the time, realise he's late for his wife's unveiling of a new artefact at the Cairo Museum. So he races maybe on a bike and, you have, uh, and we can see the city of Cairo. Uh, at the museum, we see... Evelyn is now the museum curator and she's unveiling some new archaeological shiz and her brother is there, Jonathan he's now a teacher in the school or something and they have some bants she starts unveiling and Rick turns up, maybe smashes an old pot trying to sneak in Anyway, they end up going for dinner. Uh, Rick wants Evelyn to get out of Cairo as he's worried about the German invasion and wants her and the baby to be safe. That's right, they have a kid, but uh, he's not an annoying one from the actual second movie. Um, (laughs) She says that they have so much new archaeological uh, stuff to find that her team are discovering uh, and that she wants to stay. Uh, He admits defeat cut to the mummy doing some dialogue or something to the blazing sun talking to the gods this is like you know some exposition saying that he will become a god himself by finding the book of thought tough tough i didn't steal it from you em uh and well, mine was a scroll yeah, so yeah. I've got the full book. So <laughs> yeah, mine was just a page ripped out of your book. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, so yeah, the book. He wants to find the book of Toph uh, and control the very gods themselves. Uh, he travels to Cairo, maybe sucking some juices out of some people or something along the way. <laughs> uh, anyway, before the O'Connells leave for Phrasing. work, yeah, uh, for work. <laughs> <laughs> they are approached by Ardeth after and a ca- after a catch up he tells them he senses something is wrong and the feeling he hasn't had for 20 years and fears it's the mummy Imhotep they downplay it but Rick agrees to go with him uh, they go to the place where Imhotep was defeated um, he says goodbye to Evelyn and says he'll be back in the morning and they travel out uh, to the ruins at night they eventually get there, find that there's something uh, something big has burst out from the sand and left, left a message written in the sand. Maybe you could do the similar sort of like skull face thing in the sand, but um, it, there's uh, like a message written and it says, only death is the beginning. They follow the tracks and find some sucked out dead bodies. Uh, you know, all the juices have been sucked out of them. They both say, he's back. Then Rick says, Evelyn! 
and then they race back through the night to get back to the museum. We then see the mummy sucking some more people off. <laughs> out. Sucking some people out. Uh, you said that this, earlier on, and I kept everything about it. This, this, everything movie's, to say this movie's taking a turn that I was not expecting. Is this like some, some mummy porn version or something? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the mummy sucks some people. Uh, <laughs> um, and now he's looking more human. Um, he goes to the museum that Evelyn works at. Maybe he sees an advert on the, like, oh, I don't know, somewhere of the new artifact that has been unveiled at the museum. And he recognises it as something that may locate the Book of Toph. Or Thoth. Um, Evelyn and Jonathan, uh, who's there as well, uh, tried to fight off the mummy, but Jonathan is killed. And there's some awesome cat and mouse things around the museum with Evelyn and the mummy, proper horror style. So I want it like a proper like cat and mouse thing where they ha she has to hide in the dark and stuff. Anyway, she saved at the last minute by Rick. Imhotep escapes. Uh, they give chase along the way with dialogue. Uh, uh, with dialogue, with uh, learning what his plan must be, Evelyn discovers that uh, the item that was stolen, uh, and then we insert a 15-minute car chase uh, or a chase through Cairo. Uh, big Nathan Drake-like set pieces. Um, they lose uh, the chase. But Evelyn is awesome, and she manages to find the location of where the artifact goes. Uh, they rush there. There's a scene of Imhotep putting. Uh, there's an Imhotep, uh, a scene of Imhotep uh, finding the location of the book um, by using this artifact, um, uh, and he finds that it's deep beneath the River Nile. Um, the gang turn up. There's a fight. The mummy uses some locusts or other mummies or whatever to help him. He rushes off. Uh, after the location of the book, there's another chase scene. Uh, they follow Imhotep under, uh, to the, an underwater cavern system in the Nile. Cool water scene. They get uh, to the penultimate bit. They find a huge underground temple for the Book of Thoth. Um, Imhotep is about to read an uber control line thing, uh, but is stopped by the gang. There's another fight. It leads out of the temple onto the sands of Cairo. Um, and maybe he creates some like loads of mythical Egyptian beasts or something, I don't know, to fight the O'Connells. Maybe even the Scorpion King. Oh, <laughs> who knows? Um, anyway, Evelyn gets the book, reads the uber control line herself, becomes able to control the gods themselves. She calls Osiris to judge Imhotep down on the ground. Imhotep is vaporized by Osiris because he's got an evil heart and he is devoured by the, 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 the crocodile hippopotamus. Uh, dog <laughs> thing that is actually in Greek mythology that uh, Greek myth Egyptian <laughs> mythology that kills uh, people who aren't worthy enough to go into the afterlife. Anyway, Evelyn gives the, uh, the god the book, and the god disappears, um, and they all laugh off and ride off into the sunset at the end. <laughs> they all laugh by riding. That was such a great day. <laughs> <laughs> 
was for the people who got sucked off by the mummy. I mean, that was a great <laughs> yeah. day for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Multiple people across you Egypt. All their a, face. <laughs> just a, a straight line across the are, desert. Are you sure it's, uh, it's, uh, it should be called the mummy or should it be called the daddy? <laughs> the daddy. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. All right. Thank you all. Uh, Again, no questions either for you, Ross. Uh, So with that, we'll move into the debate phase. Um, For the listeners out there, quick reminder, first off, and thank you to M for giving us this piece of feedback which I am now integrating for the first time into the podcast. Oh, really? First, we had M's pitch, which was The Mummy's Revenge, where Rick and Evie get married, the pharaoh from the first movie comes back, and Brendan Fraser has a sword fight with Paul Bettany. Yes. Um, We have Andy's pitch, where there's going to be a wedding, but it gets interrupted, and a woman descended from an evil pharaoh tries to turn Evie into a god baby machine. (laughs) Good sum up, Um, good sum up. (laughs) And we had Ross's pitch... Uh, the Mummy Ever Living, where World War II General Rick and museum creator Evie get Imhotep vaporised by God. <laughs> <laughs> and, and meanwhile, the Mummy is sucking off lots of people. Indeed, indeed. With that, I open the floor to you guys. I'm not going to let this go on for too long, but it's all yours. Tell me why yours is the best or why the others maybe aren't as good. You should pick mine because I use Egyptian mythology, uh, which is, uh, and then I, you know, skew it a little bit. I do a little bit of revengey story. I kill off one of the main characters, and you know that it means business because you know that's the problem about the other one. There was no death. You shouldn't pick Andy's because he literally his thing is about a baby machine. Like it's a bit weird. Uh, M's. You're going to pick M, so I'm just going to say between mine and Andy's, uh, you should pick mine. Um, Can I just ask, Ross, um, is your pitch sponsored by Uber? Because you mentioned Uber several times, and I'm just wondering, is this like some agreement with Uber, like a porn version of... Like an Uber yeah, yeah, ride yeah. or something, or <laughs> yeah. like, how, how did that come about? Again, so. <laughs> um, I meant uh, it's a Uber as in like the most important line, not the. But yes, it also could mean that Uber are sponsored. Like maybe there's an Uber uh, logo on the book of cloth or something. Well, no, so it's yeah, we're trying to get money off a of corridor crew and Uber, and, uh, yeah. and it's not going well. Quick, Rick, yeah. we need to get the mummy. Call an Uber. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah you should pick mine because of that okay go uh, on Andy go on mine, see if you so can try I, I feel I, I I I deliver a family friendly sequel that like what? kind of builds on the yeah that builds on family the fa- uh, build, it's family friendly yes, sorry you my mum's all sucking ba- off every other guy <laughs> <laughs> my, you will be my baby making machine you will kill off Jonathan like this is a family PG film we like that character you can't kill him off I was waiting for you to Mate, bring him back to life at the there end there was in the first no, film loads of people got sucked off loads of people and some guy lost his eyeballs and you're saying that I can't kill off Jonathan what the fuck <laughs> you're yeah, using a woman we like that. They, they deserved death. They, we, we didn't. We was not supposed to like hey. that. We like Jonathan. Hey, we, we want to see him in the third. Hey, one. M, do you want to? Yeah, we really love this character of Evelyn. So, and you know, women empowerment. And yeah, we're just going to use him as fucking baby <laughs> Look, machine. Right. Okay. So yes, I do have a huge issue with the whole Evie's going to become a baby making machine for a god because yeah, that. I mean. 
Let's not do that, guys. Like, uh, yeah. let's not treat women as baby-making <laughs> machines for a god. Um, but I do have a question for you, Andy, about your pitch. Mm. So yeah. you talk about um, the the pharaoh pack. Uh, first of all, is that a genuine pharaoh? Or did you just make no. that up? No, no, no. Okay, no, so, I mean, like... so this is not based on like real history or anything? Well, the first one's not, no. The first one, well, yeah, but it's said he was a real guy. It is. Yeah, and Imhotep was as well, and Anux and Amun lived a thousand years apart. Yeah, but the point, stuff, but the but point um, I'm trying no, to make is that the Pharaoh yeah, yeah. Seti was a real person. So you're basically just making up some Pharaoh. Okay, cool, whatever. Um, yeah, but... I'd rather do that than disgrace Imhotep's name. Because <laughs> he was actually a really good high priest, apparently. He was like, he did shit for the earth. Uh... Oh, what are you? To be yeah, fair, yeah, we're all bashing Imhotep here. Let's just get <laughs> to off the back. No, I'm not bashing Imhotep. Imhotep's, yeah. Imhotep's the dude. In my story, Imhotep's mm. practically the hero. So I, there's no yeah. Imhotep bashing. But I just want to ask you. So you mentioned about that Joanna's a descendant of the Pharaoh pack. And it's like, obviously, mm. like ancestry. And, you know, she's a descendant and all of that. But I had a look on Google because I was like, 3,000 years. Like, how many generations is that? And that's like 150 generations. And my point is, is they didn't have Ancestry.com back then. So how does... Evie know that Joanna's a descendant <laughs> of a pharaoh when if... She reads it in a book. Yeah, but... <laughs> oh, yeah. But that's, that's 150 book. generations. Come on, we could go on little bits in your your pitch about little end of little I'm bits. We've got, what if mummy just comes back to life as well? Like, when oh, did this happen? so but... spicy. <laughs> I'm yeah. just asking. No, what do you mean he just well, comes no, back? You could, you could he escapes just say... the underworld in mine. He escapes how? the underworld. That's what do you a mean, good point. What, like, yeah. what? I bring you the I bring you the pitch. I don't have to. <laughs> no, we need to know how. We need to know how he was resurrected. He escapes the the the. But we need to know how. He brings some ancient Egyptian. That's a really good point because you need you need a way of escaping. With he has a fight with Anubis and then he. He gets his soul Just back to his back body door. because I've already fucking done the research, you little dweeb. Yes, I did the little research and I know that once a person dies, their soul gets separated from their body and they have to go through with Anubis, the half dog thing, through all these weird creatures and shit and they have to go all the way, all the way to Osiris and right by when they're with Osiris, they put their heart on a little scale with a feather on the other side and if it's like lighter than a feather then they they go to the afterlife it's if it's heavier then mm. they get devoured by a dog crocodile fucking hippopotamus <laughs> creature yeah, but that still can. doesn't explain how yeah, but how does, how he, does get he come out? back at the start yeah i bring you the bitch yeah. <laughs> i do right, bring right. you the square i ask i want to ask em go on, it, so imitep comes back in yours yeah he doesn't know it's the same like so uh does he have his powers um technically yes because um, if he had his powers, why, even though he's in love with Nyx and the Moon in, at the end, yeah. why wouldn't he just kill Rick, who he still hates, if he has his powers? Because love like, is oh, stronger than hate. Redemption. No, but if he's got his power, like, why would he just be like, oh, I'm going to go back to the undead world where I've got no power? Because no, his love for Nyx and the Moon. Because the point of the first movie isn't that Oimhotep's like some heartless beast who just wants to take over the world that's his curse that's doing that it's not him he's basically been cursed because of his love for this woman so my point is is it's not that imhotep's the bad guy he's literally just in love with this girl and he's been in love with her for three thousand years 
And all he wants is to be with her. So when it comes to the end, and he could have the opportunity to kill Rick, who's basically been, like, you know, fighting him and, you know, historically and all of that, and caused him quite a lot of shit. (laughs) But all he sees is the opportunity to be with his one true love in the afterlife forever. And so he chooses that. redemption, though, for their character when he doesn't say earned as i say he's got his love back he's got all this power why would he just suddenly peace out it'd just be like right i'm gonna i'm gonna go back to my first plan and take over the world yeah but that's that's not the point of the first movie the point of the first movie he's isn't in the first movie he's not trying to take over the world he's trying to resurrect oh yeah no but now he can take over the world exactly so it's a culmination of that so if you've (laughs) seen the first movie and then you watch my version of the second movie then it's basically just a dude who just really really loves a girl and their love goes beyond <laughs> and then they're, time so they're both and everything. resurrected and then they both kill themselves. But the first one he wanted to resurrect. No, they go to the afterlife. Yeah. So yeah. they go to the afterlife saying, to be together. Why am I helping I'm him, actually? I'm like speaking for Imhotep as well. I'm like, Imhotep wouldn't want that. No, I'm just like, why would he? I'm, my question is, why would he want to go back to the afterlife when he could stay alive and still be powerful? Which obviously... You know, because that's not, not important to, to him. That, but... Because his love is more important and an axe and a moon is more important. Okay. Look, right, women are cool, right? Women are awesome. <laughs> and, they are. you know, if I'm, when a man loves a woman, basically that's what I'm doing, is when a man loves that's a woman. Gonna, that's going to be your end credit. So <laughs> when a man loves a woman, like, this this man will do anything for this woman and he, they basically just want to be together. But this isn't their world. This is like, you know, 3,000 years in the future. They don't belong there. They just want to be together where they belong. I think, Drew, you've got uh, two people that actually, you know, did some research on ancient Egypt and stuff. And Andy just created a pharaoh out of nothing. Yeah, so... <laughs> Why use real people if you're not going to use their real Because story? the first one is, yes, it's not, it's yeah, not but accurate, but it's still... You've got the still... Seti, Imhotep, and the Nooks and the Moon that are a thousand years apart each. Yes, but they still so use why those... So why put them in? Why not just make up a pharaoh yeah, or have someone at the first one at the same time? This, the first one still uses... Like, yes, it's not factually accurate, but it still at least uses the mythology of those characters, like uh, a character from that thing. So no one that's going to... A scholar's not going to watch The Mummy and go, well, this is not what I fucking signed up for. This is totally... <laughs> yeah, no, it's about, it's I, called I, The I, Mummy, I, for fuck's sake. But... It's, not, yeah, it's not a big... But, so, anyway, but yeah. Just make up, yeah, make up your own character. <laughs> I, I would just like to, to kind of bookend this by saying that Drew, you should choose my pitch because I have actually not only put some thought into um, Egyptian mythology, I've also tried to integrate existing things that we know, like Rick and Eva's relationship. Also, Evie and Jonathan's Egyptian heritage. Um, I've added some bits about pressures to marry, racism of white people just being racist towards people with brown skin. Um and it's all—it's a story as well. And I don't know if anyone picked up on this, but it, it actually takes homage from the 1932 original. So Helen Grosvenor was the Evelyn character in that movie. So I've made her uh, mm. Helen Bembridge Grosvenor. Uh, the Scroll of Toth is also in that movie, and I've brought it into this. Um, obviously, the original movie had the Bembridge Scholars, and I've tried to integrate the Bembridge Scholars as they currently are and try to say, oh, they want to become modernised, but actually... This woman at the helm, she actually doesn't want any of that because there are some women out there who don't want, you know, feminism and they don't want modern women. You know, they do want to go back then. Fair play to them. Whatever they want is cool, whatever. But um, I just kind of really like the idea of having a a 1920s setting um, and 
kind of exploring what it was like to be a woman at that time, what it was like to be a person of colour at that time. Um, in addition to why you should pick mine, um, Howard Carnahan, Carton kind of says his name. Howard Carnahan is canonically the name of the father as well. Um, I did make up the mother's name um, and the Egyptian family, but I kind of really like the idea of investigating a bit more of that Egyptian heritage, um, as well as like arranged marriage storyline. Um, I'm just trying to think of reasons why you should pick me. Um, also wanted to call back to Seti being kind of the ultimate villain of the first movie um, because he was the one who enslaved Anuxana Moon, treated her as property, um, and just to basically have that character be the bad guy and be like a massive misogynist, um, as well as really kind of underestimating women, uh, believing them to be lesser beings. Um, and like I said, I just like the idea of Rick and Evie and everyone just teaming up with Imhotep at the end. And the whole idea with the mummy's revenge is that this is Imhotep finally getting to have his revenge against his former master and to free the woman he loves. Because as I said, ultimately, he was just a boy in love with a girl. Um, and that's that's why you should pick mine. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm going to jump in there because we're steaming towards the 90-minute mark. Um, right. Okay. Thank you all. I that was heated. I loved it. <laughs> it was great. Um, I I I have thoughts on all of them, um, positive and negative. Um, um, what I I think there is. Well, first off, I need to think about: Am I am I movie producer Drew now in twenty twenty two? having making these movies with digitally de-aged people are we making these movies in this world where we've had all of the sequels and we're ignoring them like the halloween remake or are we are we going back to 2002 and are we doing it then well that was and my idea of... was that it was going to be well mine specifically because obviously it's set nine months after so oh, that no, was my no, idea yeah. was to do it back then no no ab yeah absolutely i'm i'm saying more for my the the rules that I'm setting myself for giving points. Okay, am fine. I am I thinking of this as do I need to worry about how much budget we'd need to put into digitally de-aging Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weiss, etc. etc. Or am I not going to worry about that? I'm not going to worry about that because we didn't we didn't set that before. I was a little bit disappointed that there was a I I mainly because of the pitch that I was going to bring was going to involve rick and evie being a bit older and there may have That's been some mine. time travel and yeah exactly Mine's so, in 20 years later i yeah it, it's okay let's just yeah m's one m is m's <laughs> one. it's let's be real like m m has you've added you've you've put an, a great deal of thought into calling back to the first movie and carrying on ideas and delving into themes that are there in the first one but they're certainly not explicit and i would probably say not probably not intentional on the part of stephen summers like anaximon being enslaved by the pharaoh and how that comments on on how women have been treated historically and that's all very good i do think that sounded really glib. Genuinely, that's ve it is. It was well thought out and well presented, and I think I genuinely thought that was good. I think an argument that neither of the guys made that has been made on this podcast before is: does it the first one 
doesn't have anything like that and does it necessarily need it and i i could have seen that argument being made but i'm always the one fighting against it saying there's nothing that i there should never be a problem with a sequel elevating and being and trying to say or do more than the previous one um just to give the other guys some props andy i i like that you gave rick an arc like i i like that he was worried about becoming a dad and had that journey and then he did it through jonathan i can see a lot of a lot of comedy in there i like the idea of i i like the threat of the baddie whether or not people have a problem with the fact that he's not a real pharaoh i personally don't mind too much but okay. there we go <laughs> um ross your your research was incredibly admirable the idea of the cat and mouse horror scene in the museum i thought was genuinely cool but yeah um congratulations <laughs> I mean, this uh, well is done. so unexpected. <laughs> I mean, I I just didn't see this coming. No, I'm joking. No, I, I I I mean, I did I did genuinely come here to win, but um, I was fully expecting to have two pitches, like two excellent pitches, to go up against. Um, and honestly. There are bits of both of your pitches that I really genuinely love. And also, um, one of the things that I wanted to mention at the start, uh, because I, I did actually ask Drew this when we were obviously uh, arranging this, um, because I believe this is obviously a momentous episode just generally because it's your anniversary episode. And, and how awesome is this to have like the mummy as your anniversary episode? That is awesome. Um, oh, yeah. But yeah. Um, Drew actually informed me that I was your first female guest. Yeah, which, you are. It's true. I mean, bring on the representation, uh, taking on <laughs> the sausage fest. <laughs> Please. And, uh, uh, yeah. No, this this has been super fun. Uh, <laughs> I mean, obviously, well, you know, the fact that I've I've won is is really cool, and I'm going to be dining <laughs> on this for a for a long time. Um, in fact, every single time you speak to me on Twitter, I'm going to be asking you to refer to me as, you know, sequel pitch champion or queen of sequel pitch or something. You know, we can agree terms. But yeah, genuinely, both of your pitches were great, and and I'm actually um, I know you you haven't got yours, Drew, but I'd quite like to read yours as well. To be honest, I mean, yeah, mine was. My mine is currently like one paragraph, oh. but it would have been Jessica Henwick in modern cool. day being a dis, being a descendant of Rick and Evie, and some curse that Imhotep put on them, pulling her back through time and having to work with them in the forties. But anyway, I didn't pitch. It's fine. Oh, okay. So Em, I'm going to ask you very very quickly, seeing as you're unfortunately not with us next episode, I'm going to need you to decide who out okay. of Ross and Andy is going to be host. Okay. Right. So, I think Oh my god, this is so hard. How do how do you choose? I think I think there are great things about both, but I think that I would have to go with Oh my god. Okay. Um just <laughs> for the sheer hilarity that I got from it, I'm going to go with Ross. <laughs> Because Yay. it made me laugh, and the idea of Imhotep going around sucking people off, um, it not even though it wasn't the way he intended, uh, I feel like that would be a winner just generally, and I would happily watch that porn parody. So, <laughs> Arnold Vosloo, 
It's, it's going to be his next uh, film. <laughs> <laughs> but that was really hard. <laughs> Ross, what's the film for the next episode? We are going to be doing the 1997 sci-fi horror film Alien Resurrection. Uh, we're going to start that franchise back up again <laughs> and, and not shit on it like uh, Prometheus or <laughs> Alien Covenant. And we will be doing so with guest judge Paul Klein. So you can find Paul with us next week. Next episode. I've got to stop saying next week for fuck's sake. <laughs> um, okay, right. So that is it for episode 37 of Sequel Pitch. Uh, <clears throat> massive thank you to our winner this week, yes. M from Verbal Diorama. M, where can everyone find you? Um, Hamanaptra, probably. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, can I just say, this has been so much fun. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for such a long time um, and it's been a genuine pleasure to like just like listen to you guys and get to know you guys um, and yeah I'm, I'm just absolutely delighted to A be here B be the first female guest hopefully the first of many <laughs> female guests hopefully. start hitting yeah. we, up we some are, women we have please. tried have you yeah. <laughs> start... oh yeah but you've tried hitting you up women you know anyone <laughs> yeah um, I mean I do know lots of women uh, i am myself a woman so uh <laughs> <laughs> i know me uh, yes. but yeah it's i was gonna say matt looked different this week <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, hopefully way more attractive um oh yeah <laughs> but um yeah it's it's been a genuine joy to to be here to to represent for the ladies um and also for you bending the rules for me because when I suggested the mummy, I was a little bit like, they're going to say no. This, this, this is not what they do. They're going to say no. Or they're going to suggest the, 29, the 20, no, 2017 version or Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. And I would just, I'd have said no to both of those, to be honest. Um, but I'm so grateful that you bent your rules <laughs> for me. Uh, and I'm a little bit honoured, actually, as well. So, um, so yeah, thank you so much for, for letting me come on. Um, would... I mean, can I can I say that I'm coming back? Is that allowed? Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. oh cool. Got to defend your crown. <laughs> now, so, yeah. Yes. Well, we have spoken about me coming back already, <laughs> even before we did this. Um, so hopefully uh, that's still on, and you're not thinking, "Shit, what have we done? We've made a terrible mistake. Now we need to cancel. Uh, we need to like tell her that we're washing our hair that evening or something." Um, but yes, uh, I. I, I, I sh- M from Verbal Diorama shall return uh, at some point in the very near future. Absolutely. Uh, and I'm very excited for that one as well, because that one's going to be a challenge for me. So, uh, and I expect for <laughs> the rest of you who, who are going to have to tackle that one, it's also going to be a challenge. Um, but anyway, you asked about where people could find me and I'm just going off on a, going off on <laughs> one like I normally do. Um, <laughs> but yes, thank you so much for having me. Um, people can find me and my podcast, Verbal Diorama, um, basically on your podcast app of choice. I mean, that's where most podcasts are these days. Um, so yeah, it's um, Verbal Diorama. Um, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. It's at Verbal Diorama because I'm a weirdo. I give my podcast a weird name. So it's really easy to find and no one else would give their podcast a weird name like I would. Um, and uh, yeah, verbaldiorama.com is the website. And 
yeah, if you like the history and legacy of movies, then come and check me out. Uh, I have done an episode on The Mummy. It was a long time ago, very, very long time ago. I've also done an episode on The Mummy Returns more recently, end of last year. Um, I've also done an episode on Alien Resurrection <laughs> as well. Oh. Uh, I've actually done all the Alien movies and the prequels uh, and Alien vs. Predator and its sequel as well. So there's loads of Alien nice. stuff Listen to that one in my repertoire. Um, but yeah. Sorry, I just had to do a little bit of a plug there, but <laughs> absolutely, that's because <laughs> that's what's... that's kind of what we do. Podcasters are weird yeah, that's and annoying, and we always say, "Oh, I've got an episode on that." Um, so, uh, <laughs> so yeah, but thank you so much for having me. It's been a genuine joy, and and uh, thank you for picking me, Drew. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, like I say, uh, I, I I was in it to win it, but I I didn't expect to win because you know. <laughs> You guys are better at this than I am, and mine was super long. <laughs> and to be fair, I think Andy and Ross were probably falling asleep during mine. So, no, uh... <laughs> no, no, you did, a very, it was good. you did a very good yeah. job. I was, right. As soon as as soon as it came in, I was like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> and then you were like, uh, scroll of Toth. Yeah, I'm just going to change it to yeah. book of Toth. <laughs> yeah, that sounds yeah. a bit better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, it's it has been an absolute genuine pleasure for us as well to have you on and thank you thank you so much for agreeing to come on and we will we will see you very very soon so it is goodbye from M oh bye (laughs) (laughs) sorry I thought we were carrying on for a little bit are we finishing oh okay bye yeah pretty much (laughs) it's um it's goodbye from next week's host and admirable runner-up number one Ross Harmston goodbye Anakshunamu it's goodbye from admirable runner-up number two Andy Henry goodbye and see you next episode and it is goodbye from me find us by searching sequel pitch wherever you find social media and in your podcast app of choice or tell your friends to do that because you already did that you're here and we will see you next time bye patience is a virtue <laughs>